This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Ken Liu discusses his debut novel, The Grace of Kings. Then PW editorial director Jim Milliot tells us about his recent trip to IBPA Publishing University. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. Rose, yes, you have lots of fiction. I have lots of fiction. I don't know what happened. You remember how last week we were like, well, we've got like two books. Yeah, yeah the no, last couple of weeks, and all of a sudden it's it, blossomed all on both of a sudden sides. They're, Explosions. They're here. Books everywhere. Right. Coming out of the woodwork. So um, we have uh, a, an interesting mix. There's the usual bunch of thrillers, but also some inspirational fiction. Um, you know, quite quite a variety. So uh, at number four, we have Hot Pursuit by Stuart Woods. That's a, a thriller. Uh, it's the 33rd book in the Stone Barrington series. Uh, Barrington is a bourbon-sipping lawyer and aviator. Uh, and so you know that there's, there's plenty of excitement to be had in his life. Um, this particular book starts out with him taking possession of a brand new private jet that comes complete with an attractive female co-pilot. Uh, and so there's a bit of romantic and mm-hmm. sexual tension in there as well. Uh, we say that uh, never mind that the parallel plot lines uh, about an Arab terrorist plot and a, a stalker ex-boyfriend really never mesh. Uh, series fans will enjoy the vicarious luxury ride as usual. This is a, a a category of book that I tend to refer to as wealth porn, where you get to just sort of sit back <laughs> as someone describes his Armani this and his right, Philippe right. Patek that, and, um, and 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 just enjoy the lifestyle by proxy. Oh wow! And Stuart uh, Woods writes a lot about that, or uh, yeah, that's yeah. that's this whole that's this yeah. whole series. I wow. mean, yeah, this guy really just exists to be rich and fly right, planes, right. <laughs> and also you know tension but yeah. um but that's uh, that's hot pursuit and that's at number four obviously very very popular series uh, sold about ten thousand books right out of the gate um just below it at number five is chasing sunsets by karen kingsbury this is an entirely different kind of book um it's the second novel in a series about divine intervention um this is uh, a, basically inspirational fiction for people who want to believe that angels are watching over them and God will help them Mm. out of their, their times of trouble. And so this is a very sort of soothing, reassuring book. There's um, some emotional tension to it, but it all is resolved in the end. Uh, So, you know, really heavy on the, the inspirational and again, very popular, probably none of the 10,000 copies of this book were sold to people who also bought the Stuart Woods book, but there's <laughs> plenty of room for everyone. Yeah, sure. Take, takes all kinds. Um, we, uh, we mentioned four weeks ago that James Patterson was on the list with NYPD red three. That's still at number six. Right. And right below it, uh, is James Patterson <laughs> with miracle at Augusta. This one is co-written by Peter DeYoung. Um, and, uh, 
I had not known that James Patterson was now writing golfing thrillers, <laughs> but apparently he... Oh my gosh, and of um, course Augusta, you're right, exactly. Yeah. Yep, so yep. A- apparently, um, yeah, they, I, I don't even know that this is a thriller necessarily. It, it may actually be more on the inspirational R- side, but it, it's, a, it's a golfing novel that he just... Um, decided was was clearly the next step in his career no more wow. no more fast cars now you get fast putting greens right wow <laughs> uh, so uh you know just an, an amateur golfer uh trying to to make his way in the world and to uh, as as the book description says achieve the impossible so uh yeah a little heart heartwarming story there golfers like their books too. they do they yeah. do golfing books yeah. are really popular um so uh moving moving down a little bit um i'm going to skip over some of the other new books on the list because there's just so much but of course our listeners can always see the the latest bestseller list and right, the right. latest issue of publishers weekly coming out on monday um and, uh, you know, I'm going to just touch on a couple of interesting ones. Uh, we gave a starred review to The Lady from Zagreb, which is uh, the 10th novel by Philip Kerr featuring former homicide cop Bernie Gunther. Mm-hmm. And um, that is now on the list uh, down at number 20, uh, about 2,800 copies sold. Um, this one finds Bernie Gunther at the an international police conference in Berlin in 1942. So obviously, oh, right. there's there's plenty of international tension going on there uh, in in the midst of World War II tensions. And so uh, we say that Kara combines a murder mystery that Raymond Chandler could have devised with a searing look at the inhumanity of the Nazis and their allies presented from a unique perspective. Mm. Um, so, as I said, we gave it a, a starred review. Right. Consider that well worth looking up. Yeah. Um, and uh, just one more that I wanted to single out down at number 27 is Emma, a modern retelling by nice. Alexander McCall Smith. Now, he's the, you know, obviously the author of the number one ladies detective agency. Um, not someone I would have expected to take Jane Austen and rewrite it in a right. contemporary setting. Um, but uh, he's got a tremendous following, uh, primarily, I think, of female authors. He's really interested in writing women's stories in a way that women connect with. Mm. So Emma is uh, perhaps a, a natural. Now, I, I have to say Emma is my least favorite Jane oh, Austen novel. Really? I find Emma herself totally <laughs> insufferable. <laughs> and I realize the whole book is about her getting her comeuppance and redemption, but I just can't stay interested long enough for her to do that. So um, well, Maybe in Smith's retelling. <laughs> it's, it quite, it's quite possible that he has found some <laughs> right. way to make her an, an interesting character. And this is one of Austen's most rewritten, modernized books from you know, the the movie Clueless to Endless right. adaptations. So uh, I, I think it'll be very interesting to see what Smith has done with it. But it was just such a wonderful, unexpected wonder, yeah. confluence of author and book. So uh, that that's what we've got on the fiction list. Um, I mean, there's more, but I wouldn't want to, to, to just talk forever. So what do you have over there? Well, when... Bill O'Reilly writes a book. Yep, right to number one. Yeah, his fans buy it. This one is The Legends and Lies, The Real West. Here he talks about the truth. Uh, What he says is the uh, legends behind Davy Crockett, President Jackson's life, uh, the Alamo, was the Lone Ranger, he asked, based on a real lawman. And so he talks about the these historical and sometimes mythical figures of the West. So, like I said, he writes a book and... um, 
people buy it. So yep. other than that, so next one, a little bit further down, number seven by Laszlo Bach, work rules, exclamation point. Insights from inside Google that will transform how you live and lead. Uh, this, he takes um, Google's uh, concept of management and he kind of brings it to the uh, common uh, person here. So uh, he talks about how Google aims to keep people in an environment of freedom, creativity, and play. Uh, but he talks about other things that Google does and how one can lead change uh, their lives, how people can change their lives. Uh, next, we have John Acuff, Do Over, Rescue Monday, Reinvent Your Work, and Never Get Stuck. So another um, kind of business manual for, uh, you know, personal business manual. So we have a lot of those coming up, and uh, he's the author of Start. Next one, we have The Residence, Inside the Private World of the White House by Kate Anderson Brower. And uh, um, we don't have a review of this, but the uh, jacket says a remarkable history with elements of both in the President's Secret Service and the butler. The residence offers an intimate account of the service staff of the White House hmm. from the Kennedys to the Obamas. So that's at number five on our list. That's interesting. That's a popular one, yeah. Then we have a um, celebrity memoir. Candace Bergen talks uh, about her life in a fine romance, and we say with her trademark wit, Bergen leads readers through the highs and lows of her professional and personal life in this entertaining and poignant memoir chock full of Hollywood cameos. Uh, she's, we say she's never afraid uh, to poke fun of herself or celebrity culture. She's fresh, funny, and as biting as Murphy Brown was nearly 30 years ago. So uh, our reviewer really liked this book quite a bit. And she herself uh, comes across as, you know, kind of carries on her, her, her trademark wit and sensibility. And that's at number 14. Kind of jumping more thematically, three cookbooks. At number four, The Franklin Barbecue by Aaron Franklin. Uh, this is the um, introduction to this meat smoking manifesto. He's the owner of the Franklin Barbecue in Austin, Texas widely regarded as one of the best uh, barbecue joints in the country. So here's his uh, cookbook, and that's at number four. And we have to go down a list a little bit for uh, Food 52 Genius Recipes, 100 Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook, at number 13. This is by Kristen Miliora, I think she pronounced his name, and uh, forwarded by Amanda Hesser, who's the proprietor of Food 52, who herself is a food writer and food author. And then finally... At number 38, Milk Bar Life, uh, Recipes and Stories, uh, Christina Tosi. We say in our review, this everyday cookbook establishes Tosi, chef and owner of Momofuku Milk Bar, as an exciting and original voice. She uh, also did the Momofuku Milk Bar. And uh, so she, these are desserts she creates for David Chang's restaurants. And she's got a uh, refreshing voice and approach to uh, recipes, to food writing that uh, a lot of people are excited. And we gave this book a star. Wow. So lots of good stuff happening in April. I yeah. wonder I wonder why that is. Just everything came into bloom. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. Ha- happy right spring. Right time for spring. Exactly. <laughs> I was just going to say. I'm Rose Fox. <laughs> and I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Ken Liu tells us how he turned Chinese history into epic fantasy. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kathy Airway, the author of The Food of Taiwan, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Ken Liu on the line. His new book is The Grace of Kings. Hey, Ken, so glad you could join us. 
Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about the setting for your book. Sure. Um, so the setting is something I've described as silk punk. Um, it's sort of um, uh, an extension of steampunk, if you will, um, but mixed in with a lot of East Asian elements uh, and elements from um, seafaring cultures from the Pacific. Um, I tried to create something that's a mix of magic and technology, um, and uh, it is something that's inspired by East Asia that isn't um, a stereotypical magical China story. So what are some of the fantastical elements of the, the silk punk genre you've created? Sure. Um, so as far as magic is concerned, um, I have a pantheon of gods um, who bicker and quarrel and act sort of like a Greek chorus over the action. Um, and what's interesting about them is that the relationship between the gods and the people um, is a little different from what you might expect. Um, so in Chinese folk religion, um, the gods are not sort of these high-young beings, supreme beings who are just unapproachable. Um, they are really just sort of people like mortals um, who happen to have a little bit more power. Um, so one example I often give is for New Year's Eve, um, there's a Chinese custom of feeding the gods, the kitchen gods, uh, a lot of sticky rice cake. Um, and the idea here is that the kitchen gods would be so stuffed with the delicious treats that by the time they go up to the heavenly court to make a report on the family doings for the past year, um, their teeth would be stuck together and they wouldn't be able to say anything bad. Um, so that kind of <laughs> right. So that kind of irreverent um, sort of relationship uh, is is sort of what I try to capture here. Other fantastic elements include. Um, smoke crafting, um, which is a style of um, hypnosis combined with spiritual mind reading uh, using smoke. Um, and then there are um, all sorts of herbal lore um, and other kind of mystical uh, interventions by the gods in people's lives as teachers, guides, and, and so on. And, and tell us a little bit about the physical setting, the islands of Dara. Right. So one thing I wanted to do with the book is, um, as I said, I didn't want to write a magical China story because uh, I think um, magical China stories are very difficult um, given the history of uh, the colonial gaze and Orientalism. Um, when you invoke um, a, a magical China setting, there's a set of associations that I think get in the way of, of the story I wanted to tell. So I wanted to create a setting that's as far away from continental China as possible, uh, and I settled on a set of uh, islands in the sea. Um, by doing this, uh, because my novel is sort of a reimagining of a set of historical legends from Chinese history, it creates an interesting tension uh, because the historical events occurred in a continental uh, setting, obviously. So when you transpose it into an island setting, all sorts of things have to be rethought um, from the way military strategy needs to work to the relationship between genders to um, the way that um, characters speak and talk and the images that they use. Um, instead of a lot of imagery based on continental kind of uh, references, now they have to speak a lot more about the sea and the influence of the sea on their lives. So it was a really interesting challenge, and I think uh, and ended up making the story uh, far more interesting to write as well as to read. Well, let's talk about the uh, the characters uh, you, the, the, that are central to the book. You you uh, you have two very different ones. Can you describe them for us? Tell us about them. Sure. Um, so the two main protagonists of the story are uh, Kunigaru, who is a um, a commoner, 
um, and somebody who really doesn't have a lot of ambition at the start of the book. He's very, uh, he's much more interested in drinking than having fun with his friends as opposed to thinking about grand schemes about power. Uh, the other main character of, uh, in the book is Matazindu, uh, who is the descendant of a very illustrious line of noble generals, uh, and whose family has been uh, basically uh, slaughtered uh, in a very brutal fashion uh, by the conquering emperor. Um, so both of them grow up in the newly formed um, empire, and they, they, they find themselves involved in the rebellion against the emperor. Uh, and because their personalities and histories are so different, uh, unexpectedly, uh, they become really good friends and allies uh, because they complement each other. Uh, but as they continue on their on their march to victory, um, they start to realize that the fundamental differences between the two of them um, mean that they're going to have to face off against each other in the rivalry about what is the way to make the world better. So in, in your Q&A with PW, um, which people can find on our website now, you said that this installment is more about brotherhood, and the next volume will get more into the roles of women in uh, the islands of Dara. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. Um, so the first installment of the book um, is very much about the notion of brotherhood and the notion of honor. Uh, one of the interesting things about um the Grace of Kings is that because I'm transposing and reimagining a foundational narrative from Chinese literature in a new framework, uh, in the framework of epic fantasy, a contemporary epic fantasy, um, there are a lot of uh, things that the, the novel emphasizes that tends to not be emphasized uh, in contemporary epic fantasy. So, for example, one of the ideas here is two people can be really, really close um, and, and become as close as brothers when they're in university, uh, when, they're, when they're not doing well, uh, when their circumstances are very um, low uh, and problematic. But as they become more successful, that friendship sort of frays uh, because success breeds discontent. And that's a theme that comes up over and over again in Chinese literature, uh, but I think it tends to be not emphasized as much in, in, in Western traditions. Uh, even though it's certainly an idea that we've seen play out and we understand it uh, and, and we can empathize with the, with the concept. Um, so this story is an exploration of how that kind of story can play out in multiple levels. There are many pairs of brothers, both metaphorical and literal, in the book. And the story is really about uh, how this concept plays out, about what it means to be brothers and, and how brotherhood is a is a contentious and difficult concept. Um, the role of women is something that I um, treat uh, with a particular kind of care because the world in Dara is... Um, so overall, the, the idea here is to write a series of three... Um, uh, the, the overall idea here is to write a series of um, books that explore the concept of um, revolution and rebellion and change. Um, and so, um, and so I wanted to, um, make sure that there's an overall change in the world over time and not, not a story that, uh, not a story that talks about a world that's static, uh, and not a story about a world that returns to the status quo. So the role of women is one of the things I want to explore over the arc of the series as a whole. 
Zara starts out as a place that's very patriarchal and very um, uh, hostile in some ways to the agency of women. Uh, and that's not something I shy away from or something I, I do uh, unconsciously. Um, but as the book goes on, uh, a lot of reviewers have pointed out that near the end of the book, you, you see a sense of change and a sense of revolution in the way this is done. Um, and the idea is that the revolution will continue uh, in the second book um, as we delve deeper into the role of women and how um, their roles changed and, and how revolution continues. So what led you to make that choice? Were you thinking about um, what might appeal to or, or draw in male or female readers? There's, there's been a lot of talk about this uh, in, in our science fiction fantasy circles lately. Um, you know, I wasn't thinking deliberately of trying to appeal to one group of reader versus another. I think um, authors are best served to try to write books for um, everyone. Um, uh, by that, I don't mean you need to please everyone. What I mean is you need to think about all of humanity as you write a book. Um, you know, uh, men and women each make up approximately half of the population. So um, any sort of story where um, women are invisible or their 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 stories are just not told uh, is, I think, fundamentally um, a story that is lacking in some sense. So I wanted to write a story um, over the course of the series um, that does cover all of humanity and, and try to tell a story that covers the complexity um, and, uh, and difficulty of, of trying to um, create justice and, and, and creating a better world for everyone. So my goal overall is to carry through this idea of revolution and, and continuous change. I mean, in some way, it's because I'm sort of um, attached to the idea that change is the only constant in life and that you, you can't have stasis, you can't have uh, a return to a perfect golden age because that doesn't exist. Um, what you have to do is to uh, be ready to continuously revolutionize and change the world um, as you discover new um, areas in which uh, it's not just uh, and it requires those who are benefiting from the existing arrangement to um, compromise and work with those who don't uh, to to create a world that's better for everyone. So in, in creating new worlds, authors often uh, rely on maybe historical events or, or legends of past. Um, what ones have inspired you in writing this and creating this world? Okay, so um, the the story fundamentally is a reimagining um, of the fall of the Qing Dynasty and the rise of the Han Dynasty in, in Chinese history. Um, this period of history is most famously recorded uh, in Sima Qian's records of the Grand Historian uh, through a series of uh, biographical sketches of the main characters. So that's the source text that I'm, I'm reimagining and playing with. Um, I wasn't really stuck to the history. Um, what I wanted to do, um, as I mentioned, is to try to reimagine the story and, and take it um, to into the revolutionary framework that I, wa that I wanted to um, to to carry out. Um, and so, obviously, I read the the original text in some depth and tried to figure out the kind of tricks that Sinatian used to sketch his characters and what sort of narrative techniques he used that were effective. And so, I tried to re-implement them. Uh, in a way that made sense in the new world. At the same time, I also uh, am really obsessed with his 
history of technology and the way technology evolves and uh, the idea of technology as a vocabulary. Um, this is actually not original. This is uh, an idea that I got from W. Brian Arthur, who is a, a theorist, uh, an economist, but, but also a theorist of technology. Uh, and so I, when I was reimagining the world, I did a lot of research into the history of technology evolution and, and how uh, technologies um, in different domains uh, become, uh, over time, more complex and more elaborate and how combinations of uh, components uh, create new machines and new devices and they, in turn, become components of yet more elaborate machines. Uh, so that's that's an idea I wanted to carry through in the book as well. So a lot of the world-building centered on trying to um, make the silk punk uh, setting work with this notion of technology and technological evolution. Uh, and I wanted to in- imbue the world um, and its economy with this very informed technology choice um, as I tried to, again, carry through the idea of, of, of revolution uh, and rebellion um, and a kind of um, continuous change. And that's sort of the punk part of silk punk. Uh, it's not just sort of a, a random suffix throw, thrown on there to, to mean that, you know, there's some sort of East Asian influence here. The idea here is this is a world uh, in constant change uh, and, and the idea of not following the given set of rules and, and always rebelling uh, is very center to the aesthetic. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with Ken Liu, author of The Grace of Kings. So um, this is your first novel, but you've written a lot of short fiction, uh, often won awards for it. How did it feel to make the leap to long-form work? And, and not just a novel, but a big novel and the start of a trilogy. Uh, it was really quite a learning experience. Um, I, I think writing short stories is a lot like um, Sculpting Rex. Uh, in the sense where um, you can just keep the whole thing in your head um, and, and you can just keep on working at it because the, the, the overall form is in your head. Um, but writing a novel is a lot more like architecture. and There's a huge amount of management work that I didn't quite understand would be required when I started. Um, when, when you're doing a short story, if you make a world-building decision, um, it can be something that you, you just remember in your head because the draft will be done in a couple of days at the most. Um, and then you can think through its implications over 5,000 words very easily. Um, world-building decisions in novels tend to have huge amount of implications far down the road, and small decisions you make early on need to be recorded and remembered um, so that later on they, they make sense and are not just thrown away. Um, so I ended up learning to have to keep a wiki and timelines and all sorts of just basic bookkeeping um, techniques to to keep the whole world straight in my head. Um, Especially the the keeping a wiki, I think that really saved my life. Um, Without a a wiki to to just basically act as a mini encyclopedia for the world, 
I think I would just have driven myself crazy um, trying to trying to get everything right. Um, so that was a huge learning experience. Um, and also in the novel, structure is so much more important. Uh, and that was something that I had to learn over many drafts. Um, the structure, um, instead of being planned from the very start, ended up being something I had to rework and rework and rework many times uh, over drafts before I got it right. Um, so probably the next time I do one of these, uh, I, I'll try to have the structure set out first um, before trying to refine it. Uh, this was not the the um, the recommended way to do it, uh, but I think I ended up somewhere good. <laughs> so um, I I love the idea of you keeping your own little uh, mini Wikipedia. Do you think that that's something you would ever? release or make accessible to your readers? Uh, I know that with other uh, hefty epic fantasy series, like I can't read George Martin's Song of Ice and Fire books without having reference materials to hand to remind me who's that character. So uh, this is something your readers might find very useful too. Um, that's a sobering thought. Um, I, I imagine <laughs> if I ever were to let people see this thing, it would have to be cleaned up a lot because right now it's full of all kinds of notes to myself um, and exclamations and sarcastic remarks that I wouldn't want anybody to see um, because because there are times where I you know make a decision and then later on find out that that is actually a really stupid idea to go back and modify the Wikipedia and as well as rewrite and I have little notes in there uh, berating myself. I, I would want to clean that up. <laughs> so you translate fiction from Chinese into English. How did you start doing this and, and what what is it that you translate? What kinds of fiction? Um, so I do a variety of things. I do some literary short stories. Um, I do a lot of science fiction and fantasy short stories. And um, finally, I've translated three novels, um, uh, science fiction novels, uh, from Chinese into English. Um, I got started on this really by accident. Uh, a friend of mine, Stanley Chen, uh, who uh, is a really, really excellent uh, science fiction writer in China, um, he got one of his stories translated into English, and he wanted to get it published uh, here in the U.S. And so he sent the translation draft to me. Uh, for me to take a look at. And I looked at it and I said, well, you know, this is not ready. Uh, there's a lot of errors in here and it's really not well done. Uh, you know, I can try to clean it up for you a little bit if you want. Uh, and he said, sure, go ahead. Um, so I started trying to edit the translation. And then after just doing it for a few paragraphs, I said, you know what, it would be easier if I just retranslate from scratch because it's, it's, it's less work. Um, and so um, I did that one sort of just as a favor, uh, not having done a translation before. Uh, and then that story was published in Clark's World. Uh, it's called The Fish of Li Jiang. Um, and it ended up winning, uh, I think, the, the World um, Science Fiction and Fantasy Translation Award, um, which, you know, was a huge surprise to, uh, to me and, and a real honor. Um, and so I thought, you know, there's a lot of really excellent uh, science fiction and fantasy being written in China that very little of it is known in, in the West because translation is such a uh, such a bottleneck. Uh, and since I do have the interest and the knowledge, um, as well as the context, to um, curate some really excellent stories and, and try to bring them to uh, English-speaking readers, uh, I might as well do a little more of it. And, and so that ended up becoming um, a, a really fun and interesting exercise, as I've done 
I think, over two dozens of, of these translated short stories by now. Um, and they've been very well received, uh, much to my relief and, and joy. Uh, and then later on, I was contacted uh, by publishers to do novels. Um, so I did three of them. Uh, and the most uh, uh, prominent one is probably The Three-Body Problem uh, by Lucasine, which is a Nebula nominee this year. So uh, there are about 3% of all books published in the States are uh books in translation and American audiences, American readers are, are um, a little tentative about reading, you know, as we know, uh, books in translation. Uh, you get some of those in the quote unquote, you know, quote unquote literary world, but how is it in the science fiction world? I mean, how, how do people approach, you know, when they see something that's been translated from another language, are they more open to it, eager to read it, or are they just as tentative? I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, I've certainly uh, received excellent reader feedback for the translations, um, and quite a few of them have made it onto to year's best lists or um, uh, being discussed uh, widely and favorably reviewed. So um, my, my perhaps naive answer is that readers seem to like them and seem very open to reading translations. Uh, but, you know, I don't think I can speak for all fandom, and I certainly don't intend to, uh, to claim to know everybody's mind. Um, but I've been very happy uh, to see these stories uh, being received by critics and readers who have reached out to me uh, with joy and interest. And a lot of people have said, you know, these stories are so interesting because they uh, really show me something uh, different. Uh, they, they, they tell me something about China. They tell me something about another way of looking at the problem that I've, I've seen done many times before in science fiction. But this one is different. It, 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 it it shows me another way of looking at the problem. Uh, the three-body problem, for example, I think a lot of readers have said it's fascinating to, to, to see um, first contact, which is a, you know, a, a trope that's being worked to death in science fiction, being handled by somebody um, from another culture uh, outside the Anglo-American uh, 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 tradition and, and trying to do something with it that's very different. Um, I think one of the uh, critics in The New Yorker um, Josh Rothman said that what's fascinating about reading The Three-Body Problem is that you, it makes you realize how much of the science fiction we're used to is bound up with the Anglo-American history, um, the, 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 the way that we're so interested in the idea of the frontier, the, the idea we're so interested in uh, notions of democratic governance, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, they, they're reflected in our science fiction. But when you read something like The Three-Body Problem, it reflects a different set of historical experiences and different ways of, of thinking about the same problem. And it sort of enriches our understanding um, of, of what's possible for the genre as well as for humanity as a whole. Uh, you're also a programmer as well as a lawyer. Uh, are you currently working in both fields? Yes, I'm a litigation consultant um, in high-tech cases. Uh, which means that I uh, do uh, I straddle the line between technology and the law. I sort of act as a translator, if you will, uh, between the engineers um, and the patent uh, litigators and um, and uh, other types of uh, technology related litigation. Um, what I have to do is understand the technology and then try to craft uh, and help the lawyers craft legal arguments based on the evidence uh, revealed in the technology in the source code. Uh, and it's a really interesting um, way to think about everything because you, you realize, you know, 
lawyers and programmers have such different ways of looking at the world. Uh, and what I have to do is construct a framework that allows the two of them to um, talk to each other and to translate arguments that make sense technically into arguments that make sense legally. Uh, it's, it's just a really fascinating set of puzzles. So this clearly uniquely prepared you to create a new system of government and new types of technology for your novels. I certainly hope so. Uh, I, I know that um, the technology parts were among the most fun parts for me. Um, whenever I'm devising new um, tax systems, uh, I used to be a tax lawyer, actually, before I changed uh, to my current job. So I have a soft spot for tax. Um, a a thing no one else can system. say. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do think The Grace of Kings is pretty unique in, in terms of how much attention it pays to tax systems and, and hopefully how fun it makes the whole tax discussion uh, be. Um, and when I'm devising new technologies and new ways of, of uh, new machines and, and new ways of interacting between machines and people, uh, I, I just have a lot of fun. It's like playing engineer. Um, so that is that is a lot of I, I, I got a lot of joy out of it. And I hope readers do, too. And uh, speaking of interacting with people, you just came back from your book launch tour. What was that like for you? It was really cool. Um, I love meeting readers and bookstore managers uh, and just people who are really into um, science fiction and fantasy. Uh, and. You know, it's it's so rare for us to, to, to have the chance to interact with such a broad cross-section of the publishing industry and, and, and readers in general. Um, I just found it to be such an enlightening experience to talk to people who love books uh, and to try to explain to them what I was doing and to see them uh, say, oh, you know, that sounds interesting. That's something I want to read. Um, it was very, very, uh, it made me very happy to, to share something that I worked on for so long and so hard. Um, to share with people who seemed really interested in what I was doing. Um, so that was a great experience, and I, I really treasure it. And, and do you get any inspiration back? Do people make suggestions that you might incorporate into your future books? I think so. I mean, you know, when I explain what I was doing and why I made the decisions I did, readers will sometimes say, oh, you know, here is something that's interesting. You know, what you said reminded me of this, or have you thought about this? Um, and I, I think that's great. Um, and it's, it's actually been a lot of fun as well, uh, now that the book is launched, to um, read some of the, the reader um, reactions. Uh, readers sometimes send uh, letter emails to me um, or would just you know, chat with me on Twitter about what they thought. And it's just really great to see what people took out of it. Um, the book launch is sort of uh, bittersweet for me. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's really wonderful that I finally can share this book that I've worked on for years and years with um, everybody. But at the same time, it's sort of um, uh, there's a little bit of a sadness involved in that before publication, the book was mine. Uh, it was something that I, I could work on endlessly if I wanted to um, in, in some sense. Uh, but once the book is out there, it, it doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to readers. Uh, and it's just... Um, it, 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 it's been great to hear other people who come into this world that I created and then hear what they got out of it. Um, and it allows me to think about what I want to do in the future um, and what kind of things um, I want to put into the world to delight them some more. So do you think that after you finish this trilogy, you might stay around Dara for a while, maybe write more books or more stories there? It would depend on how I feel. You know, I have um, in my mind 
um, stories planned out for the three books. Uh, it's a series I'm going to do. Um, but I don't think I will end up exhausting all the ideas I have. Um, being a world of continuous revolution, it's now going to be a, a, a place where it ends up in a utopia and, and there will be nothing to change. So um, I, I suspect that is, if there is reader interest and if it's something that I want to keep on working on, I can probably... Um, come up with more novellas or short stories or even an, another novel uh, in the universe. But um, I, I, I also think that it's healthy to try to switch to working on something else. So I may not immediately go back to Dara after I finish the three books. I may do something else, uh, but I can always return to it. We've been talking with Ken Liu, and you can find his book, The Grace of Kings, in stores right now. Ken, congratulations on the book, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot reports on IBPA Publishing University. Stay tuned. I'm Kevin Sessoms, author of I Left It on the Mountain, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about IBPA Publishing University. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. Hey, Mark. Good hey, to Jim. be with you. Nice to have you here in the office with us. So, um, when, what is IBPA, and what's their publishing university? Okay, those are fair questions. Um, <laughs> IBPA is the Independent Book Publishers Association. It's been around for roughly 30 years or so, and it has uh, the current day today about 3,000 members, um, all of which come from independent publishers and a growing number of self-publishers. And you were just at the conference. Uh, it, this is the uh, publishing university. This was uh, uh, just uh, last week. Right. It was down in Austin. Right. And they had uh, 280 people, which was uh, the cap number. They couldn't... Uh, any more people in the Sheridan there. And what it is, is maybe what you would think of as a typical conference. It had, uh, you know, a couple dozen panels um, and sessions devoted to really providing practical advice for these publishers. Because um, it's really, like, as we said, it's really a combination of people who are getting in the business either to self-publish their own book or maybe to, um, you know, start a little book publishing operation because... Let's face it, everybody wants to write a book, and everybody knows who somebody has written a book. <laughs> and, and everybody wants to break into this exciting industry that we have. Uh, so this is an educational event. Um, what kind of education was on top? Were there panel discussions, lectures? How did that work? A lot of panel discussions. And as we said, it, it really provides a lot of first-person advice in some ways. You have uh, uh, other publishers telling their you know, fellow publishers out in the audience about certain things that have worked well um, and when they try to like, ramp up their publishing operation or, or get it off the ground. I mean, things that range from something as simple as this one publisher who did a $75 um, picture book on um, red tractors. And his advice was, well, he wasn't going to do an e-book and sell it for $20 when he had his $75 book out there. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's really, it's a lot of nuts and bolts stuff. Um, but then there is this discussion on copyright and fair use and that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it covers, like we said, a wide range of, of topics. But you really get the sense there that 
and I was you know, there for three days, that the people who will go really do appreciate hearing from their colleagues. Because even if you've been in the business for a while, if you're uh, somebody I was sitting at a table with was, I think, in Frisco, Texas, mm-hmm. he's like, well, we're, you know, we're sort of here by ourselves. Right. So it's really nice to hear you know, other stories and, and other, or, or war stories either, or, or best practices about what's working and what's not. So you get a real sense of community. Definitely. I think community is the word that they, um, they're trying to foster. You know, the IPB itself has gone through some changes. I mean, it was founded by somebody well-known in the industry uh, back in the day, Jan Nathan, who had started it as the Publishers Marketing Association, um, basically to help represent West Coast um, publishers who are you know, not always going to BEA and that sort of thing. So she had started that, um, and it grew quite rapidly. She died a number of years ago, and her son uh, helped take it over, and now they have a, a new uh, new executive director, and they are, you know, looking to expand the membership. So what exactly, for for the Independent Book Publishers Association, who are these independent book publishers? Like, are there anyone who publishes anywhere from one to five titles a year, or... Well, it goes from... um, How do they define that? uh, Well, as you know, in publishing, nothing is defined. (laughs) 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 So true. (laughs) But it does, it it certainly does include a growing number of self-publishers who might want to do their own, but usually they want to do more than one. But it's a lot of that. And there are some really well-established independent presses who've been around for quite a long time and names uh, that we'll recognize in the industry and some others might. Barrett Kohler. Right. Uh, there's uh, a lot right. of business books out on the West Coast. Um, Insight Editions, which is a pretty well-known uh, picture book publisher or illustrated book publisher. Um, and then uh, I found it interesting. A lot of like historical associations mm, are members. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that was going on there was the Benjamin Franklin Awards, which is their annual um, prize-giving uh, event. And uh, I think one of the ones that won was a book on Wisconsin um, in the regional category, but it was published by the Wisconsin Historical Society. Um, So it's those types of uh, organizations and and companies that are part of this. Tell us more about the Ben Franklin Awards. Well, the Ben Franklin Awards is also, I think this was the 27th annual. And the first thing you should know is that there there are a lot of awards. (laughs) Um, There are about 55 categories. Right. Um, Some people might think that that's too many, um, myself being one of them. But when when you're there uh, and you see the people win, um, you know, it does, it changes your mind a little bit because they are also appreciative. Most of them are won by the smaller publishers. Um, And it's really, you know, a very personal personal accomplishment. Um, it's something they like, put their heart and soul into. Um, and they have some unique titles, one of which, which let's see, one in autobiography and memoir was called Chomp, 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 How I Survived a Bear Attack and Other Cautionary <laughs> Tales. Um, so that was by Wise and Creative Publishing. And the, the woman gave her one minute speech, which you were allowed, and it was really very, very heartfelt. And then we had another one in the self-help category, called um, Murder Survivor's Guide Handbook. 
And I'm not exactly sure what that is. Um, <laughs> and she wasn't there to pick up right. the award. Um, but it's these sort of But types. she is still alive. Still alive. I was just going to say, it sounded a little suspicious there. <laughs> well, we do believe. Um, and then there are titles like uh, Dogs Unleashed, which won in the Animals and Pets category. Right. Um, but again, it, it, it's a real mix of people just starting out and again who really feel this is you know not their life's ambition but put a lot into it um i know this one author was up there and spoke about it was about his son i forget the name of the title but it was like you know how it brought him and his son together when they're working on this project Mm. and that sort of thing so it's you know you know it's it's heartwarming and it's all in one hotel it was all in one hotel um and as, well, another f- aspect of it, it features a small exhibition of, uh, you know, vendors and that sort of thing. But again, to give you the flavor of, of the mix of it all, you know, one of the major, larger vendor, vendors there this year was Lulu, which, mm-hmm. as people right. probably know, is, you know, a real self-help platform where you can also sell books. Um, you know, Ingram was there, you know, showing its where some s- different startups uh, and social media to help get the message out. A um, bunch of printers are there. So it's everybody, you know, trying to, um, you know, sell something to these independent and uh, self-help publishers. Right. Um, so it's, 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 it's kind of a fun event. Everybody really, they were, everybody's really excited. I mean, a lot of people don't know or are just getting into it. So they ask some really, really basic questions. Sure. Um, so it's... Uh, it's a real, you know, cross section of uh, people's ambitions. And what's the gender balance like? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, just just your sense of it. It's pretty close to fifty-fifty. Um, I would say, uh, but uh, ethnic-wise uh, and age-wise, <laughs> a lot of old white people. Mm-hmm. Are, uh, so uh, some of it's a hobby, some of it's a second career, some of it's an outgrowth of something they had been doing. Right. And I talked to one person who had been a printer, um, and they've kind of given that business to their daughter, but they have had always published some books, and now they were kind of ramp up that part of it. So I mean, I think it you know reflects you know something that we've talked about before. I'm sure is the you know the low. Uh, barrier to entry into the industry now, especially right. with the whole ebook phenomenon. Right, right. Um, you know, it's it's so easy to get into it. But to the people's credit here, they were generally, you know, looking beyond just using create space to do one ebook. I mean, they really want to, you know, do it and do it right and right. become a bestseller. <laughs> It's what what everyone dreams of. I I was just uh, your description of the award ceremony reminded me of the RWA award ceremonies that I've gone to, where it seems like every other person says, "I'd like to thank my husband who's at home with the kids tonight," <laughs> and uh, you know, people really doing this as a as a second life in some ways. You know, maybe the kids are grown, and so now it's time to start writing. Right. No, I think that's definitely it's definitely it, and it, and it's not. You know, they're not doing these books just to make money. I mean, although some of them obviously would like to, uh, well, sure, to you know, cash in a little bit. But it's you know, I think everything really springs from this is the story I have to tell. I was at a table with a gentleman who was 80 years old, and he had a book nominated about agriculture in Maine, I believe, and his book won. And it was you know, he's 80; it's the first book he ever won, and he couldn't 
uh, you know, couldn't be happier. And then I met him on the plane going home. <laughs> and he remembered me. <laughs> so you know, that was even nice. That is the good thing about writing. It's something you can do late into life. Right, yes. You know. <laughs> yeah, 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 never, yeah. never too late to get started. Um, so does this move around from place to place every year, or is it always in Austin? Yeah, uh, no, it's, uh, it, it tries to go with places where they think they can draw some, uh, some attention. Last year was in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been in Chicago. They haven't decided um, on next year's event. They try to move it around, again, to give... Because you do draw heaviest from the region you're in. I think this year there was... Like 98 uh, attendees were from Texas. And last year there was right. at San Francisco, there was like 100 from California. Mm-hmm. Um, and it tends to be more west than east only because the east, there's, you know, the bigger publishers and the BEA is easier to get to when it's always in New York. Right. Sure. So, you know, it tries to, to kind of offset that a bit. And Austin, uh, known for its music and the South By Festival, so uh, it's kind of drawing there. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people wanted to go see it, although it was pretty cloudy and uh, a little bit dreary most of the time. (laughs) But still probably warmer than New York. Definitely warmer. It was 80 degrees, I would say that. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to take a moment to just be suffused with energy. Well, Jim, thank you so much. It sounds like you had a good time. We appreciate you coming by to give the report. Anytime. Thanks again. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Joshua Davis. I'm the author of Spare Parts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Saba Tayer, author of An Ember in the Ashes. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 